Thank you, Doris. First time Doris has sung since her mother went to be with the Lord in a solo. So thank you for serving us, sister. You ever think about the blessing, the blessing that it is to be able to see spiritually? I know that's an obvious blessing to be able to see physically, but you ever think about the blessing that it is to be able to see spiritually? I mean, all around, everywhere you go, the people that you meet, the majority of the people that you meet cannot see spiritually. They are spiritually blind. You can tell that by what they what they say. You can tell that by by uh, uh, their perspective of God. You can tell that by their their perspective of, of self and and the world. And yet and yet you you can see. I was listening to Alistair Begg this past week, and he was talking about um, witnessing to a man and explaining to him the gospel. And, and the gospel to this man just was exactly what First Corinthians says. It was just foolishness. You mean to tell me that what you want me to believe is that there was a man who was also God who literally walked on the earth 2,000 years ago and that in doing that he shed his blood on a cross and, and because somehow, some way... I am, I am placed under that blood, or that blood is applied to me, his death is applied to me, that somehow all of my sins are going to be forgiven. I'm going to raise from the dead one day, and I'm going to spend eternity in heaven. You want me to believe that? And Alistair said, that's exactly what God tells you that you must believe in order to be saved. Then he talked about spiritual eyes to see. Did you ever think about the blessing that you have, even this morning, that as we open the Bible, you have the ability to see. You have the ability to see with the eyes of your heart. I was talking to Eliza Duncan this past week, and she was talking about the, the blessing it was to, to, to feel the presence of God. And she, she talked about laying in her bed praying. And she said, Pastor, I just can't describe it. It was as if he was right there. And I said, you know, she said, I don't have words to, to, to describe it. I can't, I can't put it into words. I said, you don't need to. I know exactly what you're talking about. I've been there. And I, it, is, it is as if he is right there. Spiritualized to see. The longer I live, the more I realize that the battle every day is one to see to see rightly. Every day I get up to the extent I see myself and my life and why I'm here on the planet through God's eyes, I am successful. And every time I don't, I falter and I fail and I begin to turn inward and I begin to be selfish and self-concerned and self-conceited and, and self-willed and all of, those, all of those other things. My vision can be very distorted. The cataracts of the world can form on a Christian's eyes. And yet the Bible always interprets reality rightly. And the Bible talks a lot about seeing. Lacking salvation is described as having your mind blinded. It talks about lacking salvation is like being in the dark, groping in the night, lacking light, all references to seeing. And Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, 
the pure in heart shall see God. Well, today we're going to see a dramatic lesson about spiritual sight and about the God who gives it and also be reminded of the way to stay clear-eyed about life. So if you're not there, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, and let's engage in this fight to see together. Mark chapter 10, verse 46 through 52. Tim read it for us, and it's a significant passage. It's a significant passage for all kinds of, of, of reasons. It's the last and dramatic scene in Mark's gospel before we enter into Jerusalem. The very next scene. This is the final miracle that Jesus does before the Passion Week. Now, he curses a fig tree, but that's, that's not a miracle in the sense of producing something you know, positive. This is a, this is a, a messianic miracle in the sense of, of causing a blind man to see. And in the very next passage, there's the triumphal entry. And what comes next is the blindness of a nation, hypocrisy, rejection, and, and a cross. And so this passage, Jesus heals a blind man as he's leaving Jericho, and he does that for a, for a lesson. And after predicting his coming crucifixion for the third time, it's going to be in Jerusalem. He has to deal with the ambition of the disciples. You remember James and John... They're ambitious. They want to sit at the right and the left hand. This next scene is this final miracle where, the, where there's a healing of a blind man. And it's a, it's a contrast, like Mark does on, uh, on a lot of occasions. It's a contrast between the disciples, what they see, and what they seek, and what the blind man seeks, and what he ends up seeing. The passages the, about uh, James and John of the disciples and, and this blind man, who's named Bartimaeus, they're called the, the what would you like for me to, to do for you passages. The same question is asked. James and John come to Jesus and say, we want you to do whatever we ask you to do. And you remember what Jesus says, what, what is it that you want me to do for you? And Jesus asks the exact same question to blind Bartimaeus. James and John want to be elevated in the kingdom. They want to be put in a position where others will serve them on the right and the left hand. And this blind man, when Jesus asked him, what would you have me to do for you? He wants mercy to see. And then he humbly follows the Lord to the cross. All I want is to see. And he gets it. And he's exalted. And that's what it means to see spiritually. The passage puts an exclamation point on the ability to see the Messiah for who He is, His work, what He's come to do. And it's, the, it's, the, uh, the, it's not only the final miracle before the cross, which would be significant enough, but it's also the final story of conversion before the cross. Did you know that? From this point forward, there is no record of anyone being saved. Now, were they saved? I don't know, maybe. But there's no record of anyone being saved until the cross. There's two converts in Jericho. There's two converts at the cross. At the cross, there's a thief, you remember. And then there's also a centurion that's saved. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus come for Jesus' body, but we, we don't know when they became followers. We know they were followers. But right here, before the last week of the Lord's life, there are two salvations. There's Zacchaeus, the tax collector, and then there's blind... Bartimaeus. 
Now think about this. The last four salvations recorded in the ministry of the Messiah are a blind man, who's a beggar, a despised tax collector, a condemned thief on the cross, and a Roman soldier. That's the last four people that are recorded in the Bible that's saved. You think that there's a message there, something that's trying to be illustrated? What an illustration of grace and what a rebuke to the leaders of Israel. That's who is coming into the kingdom. The blind beggars, the broken tax collectors, the the thieves that know that they're guilty, and centurions that say, surely this man was the, the Son of God. And this passage is placed in the gospel as a final act of mercy and a forceful message to the people. Now, normally, a story has two themes. I mean, it has one theme. This one has two. It's kind of a blend. This is a miracle passage. This is to show us that Jesus was the Messiah. The Messiah was going to open eyes of the blind. He's going to make the, the lame walk and the deaf hear. And he's going to open the eyes of the blind, according to Isaiah 42. That, that's what the Old Testament declares. So this is a miracle passage. It clearly shows that Jesus has the authority and that he is the Messiah. But it's also a discipleship passage. This man is not just healed. This man is saved. And I'll show you that. He is added to the number of disciples and he follows Jesus to Jerusalem. So it's a discipleship passage as well. And normally it's one or the other. But this one tells us what kind of king is Jesus. Jesus is is revealed as the son of David by a blind man, not by the leaders of Israel. He's a king who serves even the least of men, even those begging in the dirt beside the road. He's not one who comes for an elevated position like James and John. That's the kind of king that he is. What kind of disciple follows the king? One that sees by faith who Jesus is, that he's the son of David. One that cries out for mercy, undeserved and yet needed. One that comes when he calls and one that follows him in the way of the cross. That's what Mark teaches us. So let's see what God wants us to learn from a blind man who sees the king and a king who reveals his disciples. So there are four disclosures, I would say, about spiritual sight from this blind man who sees the king and the king who reveals his disciples. There's the beginning of the story just describes the man's dreadful condition. We're told very clearly who he is and what he's like and his, his condition. And then we're told about his cry, how he cries for mercy and the crowd discourages him from, from seeking. And then the picture turns to Jesus. Jesus stops and the king calls him to come in verses 49 through 51. And then... There's the king's cross to follow. This man begins to follow him along the way. Let's look at this first one. There is his dreadful condition, and he is described. Look, if you would, at verse 46. It says, Then they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a large crowd, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the road. So Mark gives us the scene. He, he sets it up. Here's the introduction. Jesus was leaving the old city Jericho, which was in ruins. And he's beginning to, to enter into the new one that was built by Herod. Jericho 
was, was long. It was strung out. There was, there was the Old Testament city, and then there was a part of that city, still within city limits, that, that was Roman-built, Herod-built. And so there are actually two Jerichos in one city. That's why Luke says that Jesus was entering Jericho, and why Mark says he's leaving it whenever he's talking about healing Bartimaeus. And Mark does not record Zacchaeus, as some of the other gospel writers do. We're told that his disciples are with him. We're told that there's a great multitude as well. We know those are the pilgrims that are going to, to Jerusalem for the Passover. There's a throng of people bunched together, milling about. They're all on their way to the Passover. And there are two blind men begging. Mark only focuses on the one because Bartimaeus is the important one in the passage. And he's along the road begging. Now, we run into that every now and then, right? I mean, you, you drive through... Uh, you come out of uh, Ward's Road and there's somebody standing there with a, with a sign, you know, uh, Florida or bust or whatever it's saying, uh, coins for the poor. It's not anything new, but, but this is what, there, there was no social system. There was the, uh, the, uh, uh, the synagogue. There were, there were ways for people to be cared for, but one of the ways that, that individuals who were blind made a living was common practice, those who were lame. They would beg, and blindness was a very common disease. Some were born that way, some lost their sight after birth, some lose their sight in accidents, and those that found themselves in this condition were, were relegated to begging to survive. They couldn't work. If their family couldn't take care of them, they sat by the road, usually at the gates of the city. I mean, if you're going to beg, you go where the people are, and what better way but what better place to do that than Jericho as all the pilgrims come down from Galilee and Perea and Judea they're not going to go in Samaria they're going to go through Jericho up to Jerusalem so it's like a funnel perfect place in order to in order to beg alms and Jericho there was also the balsam bush that grew there which provided medicine so a lot of blind people probably came to Jericho hoping to be healed by the medicine that was there and they couldn't and so they stayed. One commentator said that, that there's evidence of, of hundreds of blind people being in Jericho. And so the gospel writers focus on two, and Mark focuses on, on one. And blindness was a, was a bad condition. It was also considered a judgment from God, wasn't it? And now we're getting more close. Uh, we're getting closer to what Jesus wants to point out. And why, in the Old Testament, a blind person is going to be healed by the, by the Messiah. Blindness was considered a judgment from, from God by, by the, the Jews of that day, most of them. You remember what the disciples asked Jesus in John 9 with the, the, the young man born blind? Who, who sinned, this man or his parents? That was the prevailing thought. When you were blind, you were under judgment. That's why Jesus called the Pharisees blind gods leading the blind. He uses their theology against them. It wasn't, he wasn't just talking about their spiritual condition, which he clearly was. He used their own theology to condemn them. You are a man under the judgment of God leading other men into the judgment of God, is what Jesus is saying, because you're spiritually blind. And so that's the introduction to the man that's going to teach us a lesson. And this man hears that there's hope that is close by, so he, he cries out. Verse 47. When he heard 
that it was Jesus the Nazarene, he began to cry out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And many were sternly warning him or telling him to be quiet, but he kept crying out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Now I want you to notice that he uses the correct title for Jesus. I want you to notice that the crowd is very calloused. They try to get him to be quiet. And I want you to notice that he persists in crying out to Jesus. As these beggars hear the sound of the crowd, the dust uh, being kicked up by people who walk by, and there's, there's probably a larger crowd around Jesus than, than is normal, and they say, what's going on? Who's coming? And somebody tells them it's Jesus of Nazareth. Now, they don't know it's Jesus of Nazareth. They can't see. So somebody has to tell them it's Jesus of Nazareth. And the Bible says, without hesitation, they began to cry out. And look at what they call him. The Son of David, the, the correct title. They knew exactly who Jesus of Nazareth was. The crowd says it's Jesus of Nazareth. And upon hearing that, hearing that, they cried, Jesus, Son of David. They said, who is it? It's Jesus of Nazareth. And they say, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on us. Now, there's a lot of names in this passage. There's Jesus of Nazareth. There's Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus. There's the Son of David. This is the first time... Jesus has been given this title in Mark, and he's given this title publicly by a blind man who's begging along the road right before he goes into Jerusalem. It's equivalent to saying the Christ, but using David's name as, as this kingly component. He's saying, you're the Messiah who comes as the promised king. That's what he's saying. It's the first time that this title is used in, in Mark. It's the only time in Mark... Anyone outside of the disciples has called Jesus Messiah. That's significant. He's been called rabbi, he's been called teacher, he's been called by his name Jesus, which means saved, you know, uh, Jehovah saves. But only Peter has said, you're the Christ, the Son of God, and he didn't use this title, he didn't call him Son of David. Jesus has called himself the Son of Man. And what did Jesus say to Peter when Peter said, and they come to Caesarea Philippi, and he says, you're the Christ, the Son of God. What Jesus says, don't repeat that to anybody. Tell no one, right? That's what he said. So think about why this story is here and where it's located in the gospel. Right after the third, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. Right after he rebukes the disciples who still don't get it, God uses a blind beggar to give the kingly title to Christ, first time publicly and right before he enters Jerusalem, and that's significant. It's also the evidence of why this is not just a healing, but it's a salvation. What the blind man first declares in the next passage, a massive crowd in Jerusalem will repeat, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The title, Son of David. And the king coming for his kingdom, and this is no ordinary title. He was the son of David. He would sit on David's throne, and this is no ordinary call. The word that is used here, he began to cry out, Jesus, son of David, is, is a desperate shout. It's a, it's a scream. It's actually the word that's used for the crowds crying out for Jesus' crucifixion. Crucify him! That's the, that's the word that's used, the same word used for this man saying, 
Son of David, have mercy on me. And he cries because he knows that the Messiah was open the eyes of the of the blind. And they believed in who he was, and they believed in what he could do, and they believed that, that he could help him. So look what they cry. It's urgent. It's serious. It's different from what the crowd calls him. It's the messianic title. The Messiah is supposed to open blind eyes, and, and they request, not for elevated positions, but they request for mercy. Have mercy and have it on me. That's one thing to ask God for mercy. Uh, I pray for mercy for those who have been uh, caught up in the, the floods of the hurricane. I pray that for, for people. But I pray differently whenever the flood comes to my house, don't you? <laughs> have mercy on them. Have mercy on me. I mean, this is, this is desperation. This is, about, this is about me. This is not, Jesus is the Savior of the world. I pray that people would be saved. That you should pray that, but it's very different whenever you say, God, I need you to save me. I need you to have mercy on, on me. Now, it's personal. It's not general. You see how it goes from the, the Messiah of Israel to the Messiah of Israel having mercy on me? It's personal, and, and you've got to make that transition too. You've got to make the transition from Jesus, who is a man from Nazareth, to Jesus is the Son of David, the promised one, to that same promised one having mercy on me. He's a personal God. And you must be saved. You, as an individual. And they knew they needed mercy. And that's what you asked for. Now, I want you to notice there, there are no demands. They don't say, I want to ask you a question. Why was I born blind? Or, or why did this accident happen you know, to me? They, they, didn't, they didn't ask for anything. They just say, God, please help me. I don't deserve your help, but I need it. They ask for mercy, and that's exactly where God meets human beings, isn't it? In the Old Testament, in the tabernacle... Where did God meet people? On the mercy seat, didn't he? On the mercy seat. God says, I'll meet you there. That, that's where God will meet you today. On the mercy seat of prayer, when you cry out to God for, for mercy. And when you come to God in, in faith, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, asking for mercy, He will meet you there. And that's what these men asked for. We're not told if they, they knew anything else. Or if they said anything else, but what's important, they, they ask for. Now, do you remember the last person who came to Jesus asking about the kingdom? This is about the kingdom. You're the Messiah. You're the son of David. Have mercy on me. You remember the last person in Mark that came to Jesus and asked him about eternal life? I know Stephen preached to you the, the, the tax collector, or the publican and the Pharisee, but, but the last one in Mark was the rich young ruler. There's a contrast here. Do you remember what happened to him? The last potential recruit that we met in Mark for the kingdom was admirable, was respected, he was a wealthy man, and he rejected the kingdom and was not welcomed, much to the disciples' dismay. Not because God wouldn't take him, but because he, he rejected, he refused his own heart. And the disciples were dismayed by that. They said, if not him, who then can be saved? Do you remember that? If not him, who then is kingdom material? 
And Jesus answers the question right here. This is kingdom material. Jesus is building His kingdom, but it's not coming as the people expected. It's not in pomp and circumstance. It's not in positions of earthly power to the right and the left hand. And its subjects are not people that were expected either. It was the low class. It was the tax collectors. It was the thief on the cross. It was the blind and the lame. It was the Roman soldier. That's because His kingdom is a spiritual kingdom first, and it's entered by faith. And you'll not come to Christ by faith until you see yourself as a blind beggar alongside of the road. You won't. (laughs) You'll depend upon yourself. And a blind man has nothing to lose, nothing to sell, nothing to give away. And so he comes as he is, he immediately follows Christ. And that is the work that God does in salvation. There are two works. He tears down and he builds up. And long before God will ever bring you to the point where you'll be saved, the first thing He'll do is He'll bring you to an end of yourself. You'll get lost before you get saved. And some of you are too full of yourselves and too full of your, your stuff and your abilities and anything else that's around you. And you say, why am I struggling and having such difficulty? You, you may see it as a grace of God. God may be stripping away all of the things that you're depending upon So you can actually see what is the one thing that's most important. And when God begins to to do that and people begin to come to Christ that way, spiritually blind people get uncomfortable. Look at verse 48. Many were sternly telling Him to be quiet. The word's an imperative. It's a, it's a, it's a continual action. It's, it's they continually rebuke them. As they continually cried out, the, the men continually rebuke them. It's equivalent to telling them to, to shut up. I know you're, you're a child. You shouldn't say that. My mom said that she'd wash my mouth out. But that's what they're saying. Who's in the crowd? Who's saying this? Well, the disciples and other Jews... Where were they going? Where's this crowd going? They're going to Jerusalem for the Passover. Those, Luke says, were the ones who are leading the way are the ones that are rebuking them. Luke specifically says it's those in the crowd that are out front that are the ones that are telling them over and over, be quiet, hush. The ones leading the way to Jerusalem where they're going to sacrifice to God and worship Him and remember the time when the Passover, when He passed over them and delivered them from their bondage in Egypt when He heard their cries. That's the group that's telling these two blind men to stop their cries to the Messiah, the Son of David, who was promised in the Passover. And these two blind beggars were were annoying them. How blind. When you're self-consumed, you you don't love others. You're too full of yourself. And when you don't uh, don't love others, their pain will actually get on your nerves. And you don't want something disturbing your comfort. You'll serve to the point that that your comfort will allow, and then when it becomes uncomfortable, they'll actually get on your nerves. Their genuine needs will get on their nerves. Do unsafe people get on your nerves? shouldn't. They do because we're fleshly, but they shouldn't. 
Did you know an unsaved person crying out for mercy never once got on Jesus' nerves? So he came to save. He loved them just as he loved you. The crowd didn't care about these men. But Jesus does. Look at verse 49. Now, this is very deliberate, and I'm going to show it to you. Here's the king's call to come. Verse 49. And, now we're going to turn to Jesus. We're all about the the blind men, the blind man, the crowd, the titles, the names, his condition, his persistence. He won't shut up even though they say, stop it. They cried all the more, and now we turn to Jesus, the King, who's been identified as the Son of David. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. Call him here. Here is in italics in my Bible, because the word is call him. He stopped. He called him. There's a conversation with the blind man. Take courage. He's calling you. The man comes to Jesus, verse 51, and and Jesus asks him the question, what do you want me to do for you? Same question he asks the disciples. And the blind man gives an answer, and Jesus serves him. Do you see all that? He stops, he calls, he asks the question, and then he serves the man as the Messiah. Now, only verse by verse... Grinding through the Bible, I think, will help you see the significance of this statement. He stopped. Because it shows the significance of what Jesus does here. And it shows his character. Back in Mark 10, you remember when after uh, when Jesus gives them the... I mean, just a few... The, the scene before. The disciples are amazed and the crowd is in fear at the Lord's determination to go to Jerusalem. He's out front. He's pulling them along in his train. And the disciples are amazed. And that's what causes James and John to get excited. We're going to Jerusalem. They don't fully get it. And I'm going to make sure I get a good seat, the right and the left hand. And the rest of the crowd is going, something's going on, but we can't really figure out what it is. And the text says they were afraid. Jesus is out front. He set his face like a flint going to Jerusalem. He's intent on going to Jerusalem. He's intent on, on doing the Father's will. He's intent on going to the cross. And yet he stops here. Why? To serve a humble beggar. You see, the cross is about God's glory, but its benefits are to you and to me. And he's never too busy to hear one of his children's cry. Can Can you imagine this scene? You've got two men yelling some distance away. Hundreds of people between them and the Lord. Jesus is walking, pressing towards Jerusalem. He's leaving Jericho. He's headed to Jerusalem. They're all around him, behind him, and he stops. And so does everybody else. And he says, call him. It's a command. I think it's an imperative. And Mark says, and they called the blind man, saying unto him, Be of good comfort, get up, he calls you. What a statement. What a statement to hear. Be of good cheer, be of good comfort, he calls you. Do you remember, Stephen mentioned this, do you remember that moment? 
when He bid you to come. It could have happened in many different ways. It could have happened in your bedroom with your mom or your dad or somebody. It could have happened with your Sunday school teacher. It could have happened in a church service. Whenever your heart began to beat, and you knew very specifically that the man that was standing before you preaching didn't know you, didn't know exactly what was going on in your life, but you knew what he was saying was true, and there was a work going on in your heart, and you couldn't escape it. And maybe you'd avoided it before, but you couldn't avoid it this time. There was no way that you could. Do you remember that? Has that ever happened? Is it happening now? Do you remember the moment when He bid you to come when you were begging for mercy? And God said, come to me. I do. Mark says, this man, casting away his garments, rose and came to Jesus. Now, don't miss this. It's a blind man. <laughs> he throws his, his, uh, his, his, his cloak that's spread out in front of him, and that's what he would beg with, and people would throw coins on that, and he gathered it up at the end of the day. He throws that aside... And groping as he walks, he, he goes in the direction of the voice. And he reaches the Lord. And Jesus asks him, what do you want me to do for you? Sweeter words have never been uttered. He can do whatever you need. Whatever you need. Whatever sin you've ever committed. He can wash it clean. And the beggar said, Lord, I want to regain my sight. I want to see. I want to see. It's a prayer I pray. Lord, I want to see. I want to see you in your word. Give me faith to see you. I want, I want to be able to see. I don't want to feel my way through life. It, it leads me astray. I want to see. And with those words, Matthew says that Jesus was moved with compassion. He reaches out his hands. He touches his eyes and said to the man, receive your sight, and immediately the man did. Here was the hand of the Creator suspending the law He made Himself, and He healed the man, overcoming the curse. Where was Jesus going? He was on His way to Jerusalem. What was He going there for? To die, and yet He cared enough serve this blind beggar. And while the crowd didn't care, Jesus did. How merciful of a Savior that we have. Does Jesus care for you? Oh, I don't know. He does. <laughs> Way more than you think. Pray that you'll see <laughs> how much He cares for you. Will He answer if you call? Yeah. And what will He do? He'll have compassion on you. Richard Sibbs, the Puritan, said there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. Aren't you glad for that? <laughs> and all that's wonderful, but that's not the final punchline of the story. The final punchline of the story is a change that Mark makes that turns this from not only a miracle passage to a saving faith discipleship passage. Look, if you would, at verse 52. The blind man said to him, Rabboni, teacher. 
He's called Jesus the Nazarene, Jesus of Nazareth. They identify him as Jesus, the son of David, the messianic king that's coming. They ask for mercy, which is exactly what the Messiah promised that he would bring. And now, as he's kneeling before him, he calls him teacher. I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, go, your faith has made you well, or literally saved you. So it's it's the word for, it's also used for salvation. So you say, well, well, it could be made well, yes. But I think it's very evident that it's more than that with the next phrase. Immediately he regained his sight and began following him on the road or in the way, some of your translations may say. Now I want you to notice the transition, the transformation in this man's life. He goes from sitting by the road to following him in the way. Following him in the ways following him to Jerusalem, to the cross. He's sitting along the way, and now he's following in the way. And with Jesus' words, the once blind man glorified God and began following him. And Matthew and Luke tell us that the people saw this, and they gave praise to God. What a fickle bunch, right? Be quiet. We don't have need for you. Oh, praise God! That's a wonderful miracle. And then exactly what happened whenever... He comes, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Crucify him, crucify him. Fickle crowd. The normal end of a miracle story is amazement. The disciples were amazed. You remember this in Mark? They were amazed. After the, the feeding, when he walked on water, there. when he gets in the boat, they went out of the boat because God's in the boat. They're amazed. They're fearful. The crowd's amazed. They praise God, but... But here, that's been replaced with the blind man begins to follow Jesus on the road. And where's the road leading? It's leading to Jerusalem. And his ability proves that there was a miracle, doesn't it? But following him to the cross teaches us that this man became a disciple. And it also teaches us what discipleship looks like. And there's one other thing hidden in plain sight. Look at verse 47. I'm sorry, verse 46. There was a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, sitting by the road. Now, do you notice anything odd about that? We don't normally get the name of a person who's healed. It would normally say the blind beggar, the man with dropsy, the the demoniac, the rich young ruler, the publican and the Pharisee. We don't normally get the name of the individual. The name is not normally recorded, but Mark gives the identification of the person. Not only he's... His condition, but but his name. There are only two other names mentioned in Mark, and then it's the uh, where healing takes place, and then it's the name of the relative. In Mark chapter one verse thirty, Peter's relative was healed by Jesus, but her name is never given. And then Jairus's daughter, Jairus's name is given in Mark five twenty two, but never the daughter. Even the demoniac, who has thousands of demons, the demons are named. What is your name? Legion. 
but the demoniac's never named. And here, this man is named. And to be named is purposeful. The disciples were named. The women at the tomb were named. Lazarus is named. And Bartimaeus is named because he is a witness. This man is named because when Mark writes his gospel, this man is likely known. He is likely in the church. He's named because he can corroborate the story. And Bartimaeus, who was the blind beggar, is now the follower. And he joins the disciples. He follows Jesus to Jerusalem. And more than likely is known in the church even after the resurrection. He starts as a blind beggar, becomes a subject of the king that is now known by billions of people who read the Bible. You know his name. An obscure blind beggar in Jericho 2,000 plus years ago. Now you know his name. I just spoke his name in Lynchburg, Virginia as a follower of Christ. And he's an example of discipleship because he follows Jesus and he follows him to the cross and he shows us the king. Think about the first thing that this man sees whenever he opens his eyes. The first thing he sees is his creator's face. And he follows Jesus on the road to Jerusalem. And one of the first events that he sees is the triumphal entry with people crying, Hosanna, Hosanna. The very thing that he initiates, the son of David. And think about what also he sees in just a few weeks of regaining his sight. He watches the Lord of glory marked, scourged, and crucified. And within a few more days... The same eyes, I believe, see the same Lord risen from the dead. Do you think God makes up for lost time? This guy couldn't see a lot. He sees a whole bunch in just a few short days, doesn't he? And that's exactly what happened to you. You were on the sidelines of life begging for the scraps of the world. But when you met Jesus, you cried out for mercy... And he saved you, you get up and you follow him. And you follow him wherever he leads. Even if it's to pomp and circumstance that ends in a cross. And then you're a witness to what he did. You're named. You're known. You should be known. Publicly. As a blind person that Jesus made see. Do people know your name? Do they know that you're a follower of Jesus Christ? Are you unashamed? Is your life a witness and a testimony for what Jesus has done? The crowd here is following Jesus, and none of them are named. None of, none of them can see. Most are not true disciples. But a blind man is named, and he gives testimony to who Jesus is and what he can do. Are you one of the crowd? Are you blind Brian? formerly blind Brian, who's now following Christ. Don't be one in the crowd. Be one that's named. Don't live a life regulated to, to begging. Put your bow your heads.